Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing Theresa May's big Brexit speech and what Donald Trump's arrival means for the rest of the world. I'm joined by political editor George Parker, chief political correspondent Jim Picard, chief political commentator Philip Stevens, and our company's editor Brooke Masters. So Theresa May has been dubbed Theresa maybe by some of her detractors for her inability to take big decisions and hard stands. The Prime Minister tried to put that to an end this week where they forced for some say bold speech on Brexit. She announced without equivocation that the UK will be pursuing a clean break with the EU by leaving the single market and most likely leaving the customs union too. She threatened that Britain could become the Singapore of Europe by lowering taxes and regulation if it did not get a good deal from the EU. Mrs May then hopped on a plane to Davos to deliver her message of reforming capitalism to the global elite she so despises. George Parker, I think on balance it's been a good week for Theresa May, at least at the home perspective. Her speech seemed to go down well, it delivered the key messages, it got a very welcome reception from the Eurosceptic press, but not so much abroad. What's the reaction been like and what did you make of the speech? Well, I think, as you were intimating earlier, the bar had been set quite low by Theresa May. That You know, you have that economist cover at the start of the year saying she was Theresa Maybe There was a view abroad in the markets and indeed across the European Union that it wasn't just that she was refusing to share her plan, it was that she didn't actually have a plan. And I think the relief on the markets and the pound went up sharply as she spoke, and indeed some of the relief around other European capitals and at Westminster was that she'd actually articulated pretty clear vision of where she wanted to go. In fact, it was quite similar to the hard Brexit that we'd all been talking about over the last few months. But it was the fact that she articulated it. It was very clear, as you said, on the single market, the customs union is a bit more messy, but nevertheless, fairly clear vision of where she wanted to go. I thought the response from the rest of the European Union was surprisingly measured, given the clarity with which she set out quite a sort of tough negotiating position. And also given the fact that at the end of her speech, there was quite an explicit threat that if you don't give us what we want, we are going to go down a sort of Singaporean model, low tax, looser regulation and compete with you that way. So I thought given all that, I thought the reaction was quite muted and indeed quite measured. I think people on the other side of the negotiating table in Europe know very well that when you go into a negotiation, you've got to have a plan B in your pocket. I suppose the thing is that Europe's always said, George, that we're not going to dilute the four freedoms and that we're not going to change the EU to suit Britain. So in some senses, Theresa May's speech was an acknowledgement of that, that we saw from Brussels in particular, them saying we're glad that Mrs May has come around to our point of view. And in their sense, it's easier because they have to say it's a clean break. We don't have to worry about trying to get some arrangement or some agreement. But on the other hand, it's this big question, what's it all going to mean for the economy? Well, exactly. I think that was the clarity that I think people in Europe welcome, that her acceptance that we aren't going to play by the rules of your club and therefore we are leaving the club. We aren't going to muck around with your club. Brexit means Brexit, you could almost say. You could almost. I would hesitate to say that. And so then you get into the question about the very clear message coming back from Europe this week was fine. 
but you're out of the club and you invented clubs, you the Brits, and therefore you understand that if you're outside the club, you have to be played by different rules. And it's not a question of punishing Britain, but it has to be clear to the Brits that the deal being outside the club can't possibly be as good as the membership benefits you get if you're in the club. And that is really where we get it soon in the negotiation, the sort of how much is Theresa May prepared to trade, very tough controls on immigration for less access to the single market, or will she adopt a more liberal approach to EU migration for better access to the single market? And how much is she prepared to pay into the budget to get that benefit? And I think those are the two bits of flexibility in the negotiation. Jim Picard, what did you make of Theresa May's speech this week? And do you agree with George that the clarity is just simply good to have that? And it does look like there is some sort of plan, but there's still some uncertainty around the customs union, how that's going to work, and also the transition phase or implementation phase, as Theresa May has described it. Exactly. So the speech was a cathartic moment because it was the point where the Prime Minister set out what the plan is. But when you go through the points one by one, I think most sensible observers already knew most of the elements. So we already knew that we were going to be out the single market, really, that we wouldn't be under the auspices of the ECJ, that we would want a new trade deal with Europe. Also, that our relationship with the customs union would neither be quite in or quite out, which is this phrase, it's not a binary decision there. And there are only a couple of new elements, such as the bit about there will effectively be some kind of transitional deal. But I think it's almost like we'd seen the bits before, but we'd not seen Theresa May herself put them together as a mosaic or collage or whatever you want to call it. The global Britain picture as she described And the political context of her vision. But there are still things we don't know. We don't know whether we're going to cough up the 60 billion or 50 billion pounds that we owe the EU and over what period we'll pay that. We still don't know precisely what immigration system she'll put in place, although George wrote a very good primer earlier this week on what it might look like. And we still don't know exactly what the customs union relationship will be. And then the biggest thing of all... We don't know what the other 27 countries are going to let us do or not do. The big sum of money is a particularly interesting one because I could see the Brexit reaction to that being very bad when the talks begin. The first thing is a massive bill slapped on the table for 60 million euros. Now, there have been some suggestions that I've heard that the first thing to do would be, okay, let's get it down, let's negotiate it down to, say, 40 billion, just to pick a random figure, and then spread it over a long period of time so it essentially just becomes a line on the Treasury's balance sheet. That would be a good way to diffuse that but Mrs May did say we are not going to be sending large sums of money that was the line in her speech about that so that's going to be a tricky one exactly and when they come asking for the 60 billion euros or pounds whatever it ends up being I mean there's one way we can shave a little bit off that asking some in that we do have a stake in both the assets and liabilities so whether it's pensions or whether it's the art collection or the wine collection or whatever else so I think the estimate is we might be able to shave off about 3 billion off that but I think getting it down to 40 would be very tricky and if the EU insists on us sorting that out first and refusing to do the trade deal and everything else, it could be quite painful with this extra delay from there. And the other question being, do we amortise or depreciate it over 50 years? I suspect that's what will happen. I don't think we'll pay it in one big lump sum. But I also think this idea that we won't make, inverted commas, huge payments and we'll only pay for specific programmes in Theresa May's language in the coming years. I think that could end up being a hostage to fortune, really, if they do say, well, yes, you can have access to the single market, but here is the price tag. George, let's try and tackle the customs union, which is a very complex thing that I'm not sure not entirely understand. So basically, when you're in the customs union, you have frictionless movement, which is a nice bit of technical jargon here that basically means goods can move across Europe pretty easily. It's very important for manufacturing 
manufacturers such as Nissan in the north of England so you can get a bumper from Slovakia or a headlight from France and it can come into the UK without a lot of paperwork. Now there are arguments about why we should leave the customs union but broadly speaking I think the consensus is that at least in the short term we need to have some ongoing relationship. Now Theresa May ruled out full membership of the customs union because that would mean we can't go and negotiate our own free trade deals and Liam Fox, the International Trade Secretary, has been getting very excited this week about all the prospects of a trade deal with Australia, New Zealand and of course Donald Trump. So she's looking at some kind of half in, half out situation with the customs union but no one seems to know if that can work. No, I've just been speaking to some people at the Treasury who are still trying to work out how you can make it work in practice. I mean, this is the part of Theresa May's plan, which is most like Boris Johnson's, we want to have our cake and eat it. So as you say, on one level, she wants Britain to have its own trade policy, being able to set its own tariffs. And essentially, when Britain wants to strike trade deals with China or India, our biggest offer is that we will cut the tariffs on your imported manufactured goods in exchange for you opening your markets to our service exports. Now, once Britain starts to cut its external tariff, the tariff for goods entering Britain will be then lower than the external tariff set by the customs union for the EU. And at that point, you will have a tariff gap between the two countries and that Britain will then essentially, well, could become a backdoor for evasion of duty, essentially. And at that point, you do need to have checks at the borders. That has impact on the situation in Northern Ireland, obviously. It has huge logistical issues about whether you can put the customs post in places like Dover, where it's penned up against the White Cliffs for Dover. So there are huge practical problems. And there's the question about the tariff differential between the two blocks. So whether you can have your own trade policy and at the same time have a tariff differential and have tariff-free trade and have frictionless passage of goods across the border, I think that is by far and away the hardest squared circle in this negotiation. Then the other one, Jim, is about this transition period because Theresa May has said she doesn't want a cliff-edge Brexit. This would mean at the end of the Article 50 period we stop being members and who knows what happens then. There's a lot of different opinions on how disastrous or fine it could be. And people in the government, Philip Hammond, the Chancellor for example, and David Davis, the Brexit Secretary, are thought to have been campaigning for a transition period. So that would be a way where you gradually leave the EU maybe year by year, a different part of it falls away and Britain gets a bit more freedom and a bit less access and it goes like that. But again, that was unclear about how long that would last, what it would consist of, and it's not up to the UK. That's where it's going to be, along with the customs thing George was talking about, up to the EU27 to say, well, this is the transition you're going to get. And the thing that worries me is Theresa May has to get migration down before the next general election. I don't think she could go into an election without having done something on migration. And will the EU give us a transition deal that would include reducing migration before we fully left? Exactly. I think that's one of the, the very big question marks still hanging over all of this. And obviously the CBI and other big business groups have said we need a transitional deal. We're absolutely terrified of a cliff edge. And Philip Hammond and others have been pushing for a transitional deal whereby effectively we'd still say under the existing system for potentially months or years after supposed departure date. Now, I don't think that's necessarily what we've got here. What we've got is Theresa May saying that we will try and within this two years sort out agreements for phased exit from various different programmes and elements of the EU and there'll be a different agreement for each one but that implies that all the negotiations will be complete within precisely two years of triggering Article 50. Now that is the bit where a lot of people are saying this would be unprecedented for the EU, the sort of lumbering monster to achieve within such a short period of time and there could be a real crunch point. Well, I think that's right. The Brexiteers would say, well, we start from the point of view where our regulations converge already. That makes it a lot easier than doing a deal. But the problem is that we want to have our 
freedom to set our own rules and regulations. The more they diverge from the single market, the harder it is to get a trade deal. The trade deal could indeed cover guarantees from the Brits that they won't go down the route of bonfire regulations and aggressive tax cutting. All these things will have to be negotiated. And as Jim says, it's never been done within two years. The typical deal takes six or seven years to conclude. And that's without taking into account the ratification process in 27 member states and indeed the famous three regional parliaments of Belgium, including the Walloon Parliament in Namur. They're the ones to watch, I'm sure. They're the Walloons, yeah. So the general theme of this was global Britain. This was welcomed by what people call liberal Brexiteers who said this idea that Britain is not pulling up the drawbridge, it's going to go out of Europe and into the world, although people... People have rightly pointed out that we are already global Britain as part of the EU. But Theresa May was very keen to say that we want to be free trading, outward looking. But squaring that with cutting migration, this is where this whole concept of Mayism begins to fall apart for me, George. Because you could say that and you could say that we're going to have stronger ties with Asia, with India, with China. But how does that chime with this idea of a new immigration? And you've spoken to William Hague, the former foreign secretary and Tory leader who has views on this. And we don't really know what May's view is yet on immigration, apart from the fact she wants it to come down. No, and the contradictions were apparent in her speech in Davos this week. The tensions between... To the global elite. The, to the, the global elite. The world. She was there talking about Britain being a champion of free trade and all the rest of it, whilst at the same time pulling out of the biggest free trade bloc in the world and imposing limits to immigration. She's talked about the need for Britain to be open and tolerant. We're closing our borders to some immigration. And she's also talked about an industrial strategy which could involve more restrictions on foreign investment in the UK. So there are two things pulling in different directions. And um, I will be a bit later interviewing the Prime Minister about some of these contradictions as she pivots from her Brexit approach to the industrial policy, which she's going to be setting out next week. But the tensions are all too apparent. We'll come to the industrial policy thing because this is very interesting. But she didn't get a great reception in Davos, Jim, if I'm right, that when the Prime Minister went to deliver her message, she was explaining why Brexit wasn't Britain breaking off the world. She also took a lot of her corporate governance reform agenda there, saying about businesses need to look at cutting executive pay, paying their fair share of taxes, which is probably not different from the sentiments of a lot of other people in the World Economic Forum we're discussing. But coming from Theresa May, I'm not sure it was quite the message people were wanting to hear. And based on FT's reporting, she got a very muted response. I think she got a polite response which falls very short of enthusiastic response. And bear in mind that all these business leaders or most of these business leaders campaign quite heavily against Brexit. They've then been hit with this agenda of we need you to sort your act out in terms of corporate governance and executive pay and all the rest of it. And also that speech back at Tory conference about citizens of the world went down like a bucket of cold sick, even though it wasn't meant to be aimed at anyone in particular. So quite a tough crowd to please. But I think in sort of practical terms, those business leaders do realise that she has a sort of political mandate in terms of the referendum. And she also has a political mandate in trying to deal with some of those concerns and unhappiness with the political elite, which may have partly fed the Brexit vote in the first place. So I think even though they may not be cheering her in the aisles, they do understand where she's coming from and why she has to do what she's doing. So to this pivot back to domestic matters, George, after a lot of Brexit action, and Brexit is still obviously consuming everything, we've got the industrial strategy. Now, obviously, my view is David Cameron had an industrial strategy, just wasn't called an industrial strategy. But Theresa May is packaging this up in a formal thing. She's speaking to the FT about it, and she's going to talk about it in detail next week. And this could sound to some as a sort of Ted Heathite picking winners and losers <laughs> in the economy. To others, it could be reforming capitalism to make it work for ordinary people. Which do you think it is? Well, I think it's probably 
rather boringly, going to be a continuation <laughs> of exactly the kind of industrial policy that Britain's been... Jim wrote about this very well in the FT this week, by the way, the history of British industrial policy. But I remember from the moment that Peter Mandelson came back to Britain from Brussels in 2008 and reintroduced the concept of industrial policy back into British politics. It's been an evolution of that from there. People always say it's not about picking winners. They always say it's a modern industrial strategy. But I think the broad parameters of what Theresa May will be talking about are already there. It's about supporting sectors with growth potential in the future. It's about the state supporting technologies rather than necessarily individual companies. It's about the state providing the country with the skills it needs to succeed in the 21st century. And there's going to be stuff about clusters, I think, you know, the idea of um, different regions specialising in different things. But the idea this can be a complete break from the past, I think, is a bit of a fiction. I would describe it from what I've heard as a work in progress and a kind of opportunity to do some deep thinking, otherwise known as prevarication. It's a green paper, which is basically a discussion paper, and they've already been consulting for months on this. The green paper will be a prelude to even more consultation and discussion. I mean, what we do know is that there'll be various pillars under which they'll look at themes, so as George was talking about, science, research and development, technical education, infrastructure, and something called place, which as I understand it means not just boosting places and industries that are already doing really well, but also looking out for the red cars and left behind Doncaster's places that aren't exactly thriving. So part of this trying to appeal to the whole of the country thing. But what's quite peculiar about this as well is that the cast has kind of come before the horse already in that Philip Hammond announced £20 billion over five years for what you could call industrial strategy. And only now are they very slowly working out what the strategy actually is. Well, if Mrs. May has been everywhere this week, then Donald Trump is inescapable, who is the 45th president of the United States by the time you are listening to this, as well as the confusing domestic priorities, contradicting cabinet secretaries, and the continued questions about his temperament for the job, his arrival heralds a change for geopolitics. Does this mean the end of the West as we know it? Will the EU, NATO, the WTO and the UN survive his presidency? And what about trade? Is he going to declare trade war on China, or could it all just be campaign bluff and will he calm down? So Philip Stevens, you've written in the FT this week about Mr Trump's impact for the rest of the world. What do you think his effect on Europe is going to be? Well, I think it's fair to say that in Europe there were not many people uh, cheering for Donald Trump. Marine um, Le Pen and Nigel uh, Farage, I think, is about yes, it. Up, among the established leaders. And of course, if you look at Russia as a European nation, uh, Vladimir Putin was a cheerleader. I think the big fear in Europe is that Mr. Trump transactional deal-making style of foreign policy, we haven't seen the facts yet, but we've seen the rhetoric, undermines the basic concept of a transatlantic community, an alliance that isn't just about military protection, but is about values, shared interests, and is more than the sum of a series of deals, as it were. And there's a particular fear that Mr. Trump might do a deal with Mr. Putin over the heads, as it were, of European democracies. We know that the Russian leader wants suzerainty, sort of freedom to control parts of Eastern and Central Europe. Were Mr. Trump to give that, that would undermine, I think, this whole fabric of Europe's post-war settlement. Indeed, and there's been differing responses because obviously Mr. Trump said in an interview this week with the Times newspaper that he's happy to see all of Europe unravel in a way and that he thinks that Brexit is only the beginning of that and Theresa May took a slightly different view. But I think it's fair to say those comments have gone down pretty badly in Brussels and the other European capitals. 
Yeah, they've gone down very badly because it's often forgotten, but the United States was the principal cheerleader for European integration during the 1950s, the 60s and 70s. It was the US that pushed very hard for Britain to join the EU. The US has seen historically a stable, prosperous Europe with the EU, supported by a transatlantic military alliance, NATO, as very much in the interests of the United States. If we now have a president who is indifferent or antagonistic to those institutions, then that has very, very serious consequences for Europe. Bookmasters, let's flip over to the business side of things for a moment. It's quite hard to exactly what his policy is going to be because, as I mentioned earlier, the cabinet secretaries have all got very different views on things. Some are pro-China, some are anti-China. What do you think we can expect to see from the beginning of Mr Trump's presidency once he sits down in the Oval Office next week and decides, right, this is what I'm going to do to help kickstart American business? It's very hard to predict. You've not mentioned the other wild card in this, which is Congress, because, of course, the U.S. is not a parliamentary democracy and Congress is entirely independent of the president. And the Republicans in Congress have already raised questions about some of the things Mr. Trump has said he wanted. Mr. Trump's been very enthusiastic about you know, a border tax. People in Congress are not enthusiastic. They want a border adjustment for companies that import and export. Mr. Trump thinks that's a bad idea frankly, not at all clear what's going to happen. One thing that is interesting is Mr. Trump has recently surrendered his phone, and he now has a new phone that is more secure. It's a proper U.S. government one, right. not his Android with Twitter installed on it. Exactly. And so presumably there will be fewer random phone calls inward to Trump than there used to be, which might provide more stability in what he says. There'll be perhaps fewer episodes of him popping off at the mouth. But it's hard to tell. He is Donald Trump. This is what he's been doing from beginning to end. And I think the big question, China is very much the biggest question in the room because obviously he was initially quite friendly to Taiwan, which scared the heck out of people thinking that he was going to really anger China. China showed a fair amount of restraint on that issue. But what happens with this whole question of Chinese imports is very unclear. Partly you have to remember that many of Trump's businesses import from China, unlike Mexico, where I think you know he's very clear that he does not like imports from Mexico. His attitude towards imports from China has not been quite as well defined. Because he talked on the campaign trail about a 45% tariff on China and he's talked about steel and all sorts of other things like that. But what's interesting, he's then begun conflating that, as you said, with the Taiwan thing. So the security and the economic element has become mixed, haven't they? Absolutely. I, mean, I think we don't really know what he's talking about. In fact, I'm not sure that he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> and if Rex Tillerson, who did not do particularly well in his hearings, becomes the person... His Secretary of State, State, yeah. If he becomes the cabinet minister who has trouble getting through Congress, then it could slow things down even further. Because if there isn't anyone running the Department of State, they can't be taking new policies. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Just as Mr. Trump has destabilized Europe, I think, with his views, he's destabilized the status quo in East Asia in particular. America has been a preeminent Pacific power. If you talk to South Koreans, to Japanese, Singaporeans, they'll say America's presence in that region is an essential force for stability. But they're very unnerved that this presence may now be, one, unpredictable, may two, as you say, link economic issues with security issues. And they've been treated separately. Most countries in East Asia manage to trade very strongly with China while keeping their security arrangements with the US. If Mr. Trump is saying, no, no, all these things are now going to be mixed up. 
that's, I think, quite dangerous in a very unstable part of the world where China is, you know, it must be said, more assertive and pushing its own authority. It was in the hearing you mentioned book of Rex Tillerson, nominee for Secretary of State, who made these comments about the South China Sea, which were actually a lot stronger than the Obama administration. And if they were enforced, then they could lead to a real conflict as well as a trade one. So it's a very worrying situation. Absolutely. Again, it's very hard to tell how much is rhetoric and how much is actually going to be backed up by policy, and also whether the rest of the world, China in particular, takes the rhetoric seriously, even if it wasn't intended to be taken seriously. I think we are in a very dangerous time for the next couple of months because we're just getting the Trump people into their offices where the people who have been doing this for a living for a long time can talk to them and help them put it into context. I mean, many of the people Trump has appointed are businessmen without government experience, but they're not dumb. And I think they will listen and think about the implications of what they're saying in ways that they aren't right now because they haven't had the briefing. Brooke is absolutely right. And to a lower level, we went through this when George W. Bush was elected at the beginning of the century where everyone thought that we have this person who wants to turn everything upside down. And Bush was fairly antagonistic towards China, was at best lukewarm towards Europe. What happened after four or five months is that it settled down. And of course, 9-11 changed everything after that. But there is, a, I think, a, a reasonable hope that the language may remain fairly tough for a month or two. But as people, as Brooke said, get on with doing their jobs, reality imposes itself. The two most interesting areas, I think, to watch, you mentioned the relationship between the White House and Congress, that there's a big Republican tax reform plan that Paul Ryan has put together. And I know there's been conversations between the Trump team and the Hill about that. What can you tell us about what they want to do about tax reform? And the other thing is, of course, jobs, because Donald Trump said we're going to bring jobs back, great jobs, proper jobs and stop jobs going abroad. Now, he's often tweeted this about car manufacturing. He's threatened manufacturers, General Motors. Toyota, what I was saying, you've got to have jobs here, otherwise we're going to put some levies on you. The reality of that is going to be fascinating to watch on both those things. I think on the tax front, the Republicans and Donald Trump share a view that taxes are too high on corporates and that have said that worldwide taxation of corporate profits have kept companies from bringing money back to the U.S. to invest. So that's sort of a shared view. How one fixes that is actually quite a complicated thing because there's a whole wing in Congress that feels very strongly that we should not increase the deficits too much. So huge tax cuts without clear financial benefits are anathema to them. And it's not that big a majority, particularly in the Senate. So I think there will be a fight about how to bring down taxes. There are thoughts about whether the corporate tax rate should drop from 35% to 20% or whether there's even talk of 15, I meant, on the campaign trail. There was. But of course, that does blow a huge hole in the deficit, which matters only to some Republicans. But if it's enough, they could block it. And certainly the Democrats will vote that way. I think it's clear that, again, as in geopolitics and economics, realities will begin to impose themselves. For example, I think Donald Trump is going to have some serious problems with a strong dollar if we have a fiscal expansion in the US. And we'll see, I'm sure, the Fed pushing up interest rates. And you can see the tension building already, even as Mr. Trump is inaugurated. And we may see, as we saw back in the early 80s, when Reagan got elected, twin deficits, budget and current account deficits, higher interest rates and a strong dollar, which in turn will start to destroy jobs in the US. And it won't be 
Chinese or Mexican trading practices that destroy jobs. It'll be the value of the U.S. currency. I think that also raises the point. Donald Trump is trying to pressure American manufacturers to bring their jobs home. But because of the strong dollar, American workers are expensive. We will see that many of the manufacturers, even if they agree to go along with Mr. Trump, may decide to opt for robotics and artificial intelligence. So there will be manufacturing in the U.S., but not people working in manufacturing. I thought it was very telling that with Ford, because they were under a lot of pressure from Trump to do something, they canceled their investment in a New Mexican car plant and said, we are instead going to invest in the U.S., but they canceled a car plant that was more expensive than the one they're going to build. And the one they're going to build does not employ very many people. So I, I think we might see jobs, but not nearly as many as people think. And finally, just briefly, Philip, I think it's worth mentioning the so-called special relationship between the UK and the US here that Mrs May's team have decided to try and get a free trade deal with America quickly. They've done some cozying up to Donald Trump. She has said she disagreed with his comments about women in a TV interview. But it's fair to say there's been a lot of cozying up there, which some in Westminster have raised eyebrows at. Yes, I think there's been a certain amount of wincing at the eagerness with which Mrs May has tried to ingratiate herself with Mr Trump's team. Look, it's fair to say that all British prime ministers, as a matter of policy, have to get on with new US presidents. British security depends on the transatlantic relationship and our relationship with the US is going to be more important as we leave the European Union. The problem, and one could argue whether... Mrs May has stepped over the line, there comes a point when some necessary diplomatic flattery turns into rather embarrassing self-abasement. We saw that a bit when uh, George W. Bush got elected and Tony Blair was over-eager, some would say, to make his uh, number with the new president. I think there's a danger we'll see that. And, of course, the key thing is that Mr Trump's policies towards Russia, NATO, climate change, Iran are not Britain's policies. So there is a real problem here. He has a set of policies which operate against Britain's national interest. Intriguingly also, he has just appointed a American football team owner to be the ambassador. Now, Woody Johnson is a controversial figure in the U.S. and certainly not known for his diplomatic skills. So that's going to make it harder as well. It's certainly going to be quite the show to watch for the next four years. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.